Fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and the smell of fresh manna. Today, you'll be listening to David Austin, pastor of the Manistique, Macmillan Northwoods, and Sault Ste. Marie Seventh-day Adventist churches. And now, here's Pastor David. I want to begin our sermon today, this portion of our service, with another prayer. So if you would bow your heads with me. Lord, we open your word asking you that you would open our hearts. For Lord, we want to experience the blessing that you have prepared for us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This is part two of keeping the Sabbath holy. Today we're going to be talking about worship. In part one, we saw that keeping the Sabbath holy included coming to God's house recognizing his presence, treating his house differently because we're recognizing we're standing on holy ground. It's not the building that makes it holy ground, it's the presence of God that makes it holy ground. So this morning, we've come into God's house. We need to ask the question, why? Why have we come? What is our purpose in gathering here together today? Is it just an attraction kind of like the burning bush? something akin to curiosity or entertainment, or maybe we're looking for friends. Is it a social club of some type? When Moses arrived at the burning bush and he was informed that while it may have been curiosity that brought him, it was worship that would keep him there to participate, he changed. He took off his feet and fell to his face. We're never sure why people may show up in this place. We have no idea what draws them here. We believe it's the Lord, but how? We don't know. Our hope, though, is that whether it's a bush or a building, that when people come, they will not be entertained, neither will they be satisfied in their curiosity as much as they will be enticed to worship. So, how do we keep our worship? holy. We've talked about the facility. We ought to recognize that this is a holy place. But what about what we do when we arrive? What does the Bible say about keeping the Sabbath holy? Obviously, it goes hand in hand. But to be honest, in this day and age, sometimes it doesn't. There are some people that gather for worship, and it's not holy time. So let's take a look. Let's take a look in Scripture and find what it means to worship and keep the Sabbath holy. The first question we have to ask is, does God have holy time? Now, on the surface, that seems like an easy one, and you'll probably easily shout yes, and you'll probably even think that we're talking about the seventh day, but I want to go before that. Go with me to Psalm 92 and verse 1. Psalm 92 and verse 1, because before the Sabbath can take place, something else needs to be happening. Psalms 92 verse 1, we'll read verses 1 and 2. 
This has a bigger impact on our holy time than coming together once a week to worship on the Sabbath day. Psalm 92 verses 1 and 2 says, It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High. That sounds like a worship service, doesn't it? Verse 2, to show forth thy loving kindness when? In the morning and thy faithfulness when? Every night. So how often should we have a little bit of a worship service with the Lord? <laughs> Always, right? And that makes total sense when you go back and there are scriptures that say we ought to you know, pray without ceasing. We ought to have a constant communion with God. We really ought to have a connection that doesn't break as soon as the services are done on Sabbath. In fact, it's really important for us to understand that this is how God began. The seventh day was not created first. Look back at the creation story. The evening and the morning were the first day, and then the second day, and then it was building. It was building to something, and the celebration of it was the Sabbath, but it wasn't non-existent all week long. Go with me to Ezekiel chapter 20. This is a very familiar text we oftentimes use in proving to people the Sabbath, but it really shows that it's so much greater than one day. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12. This says something very important for us today that, to be honest, even as Adventists, sometimes we often miss. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12. And it says, Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. Now, this is really important. The Sabbath is to be a what? A sign that the Lord does what? Sanctifies. That's, this is really important. That means, though, that the Sabbath is not the sanctifier. It's the sign that he sanctifies. So if he doesn't sanctify on the Sabbath, then when does he sanctify? All the time. All week long, the Lord is working to make us holy, to refine us, to make us in his image all week long. And the Sabbath is to be the celebration of what we've been allowing him to do all week long. This is very important. That means that all week long, if we have not been communing with him and letting him change us, then come Sabbath morning, we may have no experience to share, no worship to give, and then we might find ourselves in a situation where many people are today. Well, I went to that service, but I didn't get anything out of it. The number one reason why people change churches. Yeah, I didn't get anything out of it. Oh, it just wasn't for me. I don't really like the speaker. I mean, what they're doing is they're critiquing an entertainment scenario. They're not actually thinking about what they had to give or what they had to celebrate. They missed it. They missed out on that celebration experience somewhere along the line. So all they had left was to judge whether or not the ceremony had been flawless or not according to their personal tastes. Verse 20, same chapter. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 20. And hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you that ye may know that I am the Lord your God. This is really important. That means that how we are letting him be God in our life 
all week long is celebrated on the Sabbath day. We come and recognize him for his faithfulness, for his goodness, etc., on the Sabbath day as to how he's treated us and how we have come closer to him all week long. So this idea of holy time, a lot of people like to imagine that it happens in church. But two to three hours in church is really not enough to make us holy. It needs to be a richer, deeper experience. The Sabbath. He is our God and our Savior. That's the two texts in Ezekiel. He sanctifies us and he is our God. He's our God and our Savior all week long. And it builds to a climax on the seventh day of creation. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 32. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 32. The celebration ought to begin as the Sabbath begins. It says, and it shall be to you a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month from even unto even shall you celebrate your Sabbath. We understand that from creation, the evening and the morning were the first day. So the day actually begins at the sundown when the day previous ends and the night begins. That's the dark part. And then it goes into the light part. And then the day ends, the full day ends when the sun sets again. The celebration that God is God, that he is the one that sanctifies us, should begin right with the Sabbath beginning. If you haven't had a sundown worship on a Friday to welcome in the Sabbath, you should try it. It really puts the mind in tune, helps us to begin to think. It helps us to, number one, set aside all the things of the week. It's a good divider, you know, for us. But it also helps us to put our mind in gear and to reflect even then, before we go to rest physically, to enjoy the rest spiritually. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Speak to us about a Sabbath rest. I know it doesn't say Sabbath in it, but it speaks about a Sabbath rest. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. We'll read it first and then put it in context and reread it again. It says, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I got to tell you, you ever feel like you've worked too hard and you just need a vacation? Yeah, I think a lot of people automatically connected with this when Jesus first spoke it, and even now we connect with it. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest. For your laurels. Is that what it says? Rest for our soul. So the context that he's giving here is a soul rest, not a physical rest. So let's go back up and reread this in the context. Verse 28, come unto me, all ye that labor. This isn't physical labor. This is spiritual labor. People that labor for their salvation. They labor for the refining, for the reformation in their own life. They labor to be good in their life, and are heavy laden. They're burdened with this weight of sin 
that covers them so completely that they will never be able to get out from underneath it. And he will give us rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Notice he doesn't say, I flex my big muscles. Look at my physique. No, no, no. He's talking about a spiritual experience. I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. That's really what we want. We find that physical labor becomes palpable when our hearts are okay. I got to tell you, I do not like cleaning up after someone who's been sick. I'm a sympathetic puker. I was an EMT, and I got to tell you, that makes it really rough to do my job. It's hard. But when you understand that you're doing it to help someone who cannot help themselves, when you're coming along to help them, you're able to put that aside. You're able to help them, and it feels good to help them, to care for them. It feels good to care. And, and so you don't mind having to be stuck in difficult situations and having to do menial tasks that stink and deal with people that are irritable. You're able to do many physically hard things when your heart is right. To be honest, it's not the physical rest we really need, and Jesus knew that. He wants to provide for that spiritual rest. But I got to tell you, if you're just going to confine it to Sabbath for a couple of hours, that's not enough to make up for the burdens you'll feel all week long. So that rest, notice he doesn't confine it to the seventh day. We can come to him every day of the week. In fact, he recommends it, that we come to him every day of the week to find that rest so that when the Sabbath comes, we even know how to rest. Hebrews chapter 4, another great text I often use when we're talking about the Sabbath. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Paul is in the midst of recounting how the Israelites had entered into the promised land, but never did enter into the promise. They failed to recognize God as the one who would provide for them. And while God let them into the promised land, they didn't actually enter into the rest that he'd hoped that they would. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it says, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Now put this in context. In verse 9, there's a little asterisk by the word rest there. If you've got a marginal reading, sometimes it'll say a Sabbath rest. The word there is a sabbaton. It is a Sabbath rest experience that he's talking about. So that's really important. The Sabbath rest was not meant for the Israelites alone in the wilderness. Neither is it meant for Jews alone. It still remains for us today as Christians. There is a Sabbath rest experience that God wants us to enter into. And when we do enter into that rest, then when the Sabbath comes, we are entering into the exact experience that Christ has created for us. Every morning, every evening, all day long, on the Sabbath, there's lots of holy time. Lots of holy time. It's not confined to the seventh day. Jesus was alluding to this when he started talking to the woman at the well. Our scripture reading today is found in John chapter 4. Let's read that again. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. 
For a little background, the Samaritans had actually been transplanted to the region of Samaria by the king of Babylon, and the lions had been attacking them. They asked the king of Babylon to send someone there because they believed the God of the land was chastising them for not knowing how to worship him. Nebuchadnezzar actually sent one of the priests back to teach them, and for a while, they remained faithful. But when the lions abated and everything seemed to be going back to normal, they kind of just kept doing what the priest had said and then just added all back what they had done before. So they had mixed worship. They claimed to worship the one true God and built idols to him and worshiped and burned incense to the idols, claiming that it was God. So they had some truth and they just kind of mixed it with some new age stuff and a few other things. Typical in Christianity today. The Israelites were wary of this. They had been told not to do this. But instead of reaching out to them, they just created a barrier. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There's a couple of good things about this. Number one, the Israelites claimed to have the truth, but they had the wrong spirit. The Samaritans wanted the right spirit, but they didn't have the truth to anchor them to that. And so they both claimed to have a good experience. Jesus here is talking about not just when, but how. He's talking about a worship experience that's more than just showing up. It's got to be done right or it's not acceptable. So right now we've talked about holy time, where and when we can have that, but let's talk a little bit about the how. There's a lot of confusion in our world today about the how. All you have to do is visit a few various churches and you don't even have to step outside of the Adventist faith to visit a few various churches and figure out that the how is under confusion right now. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. Very important phrase. The Israelites repeat this often, even to this day. It's called the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Interestingly enough, notice he's saying that this is something that should overflow from their life. Their whole heart, their whole soul, their whole strength, that the worship God requires, the worship that he wants is not half-hearted. We don't like it when people commit that way, so why would he like it that way? He wants the whole heart engaged. But i got to tell you, it's hard to engage someone at the spur of a moment. Generally speaking, it's easy to be engaged with someone, and I'm not just talking about marriage, but engaged with someone that you have, a, have had a relationship with. The same way with God. 
It's hard to expect that we could arrive on the Sabbath day, having had no relationship with God all week, and expect to receive the blessing that God intended for us to have. We might get a sample of it, if we're even in tune with it at all, but we would not be prepared to receive the blessing as God had prepared it because our hearts had not been equipped all week long to take in the blessing. Go with me to Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6, talking about worship. If you've never read them in context, Psalms 22, 23, and 24 are messianic promises. They're psalms about the Messiah. Psalms 22 is about the cross, the experience that Christ had on the cross. Psalms 23 is his experience as our shepherd. And then Psalms 24 is the triumphant entry to heaven after the crucifixion. They're called the cross, the crook, and the crown. A beautiful trilogy that talks about Christ's message or his ministry, all in just a short few psalms. Psalms 24, starting in verse 3. It says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. This is interesting. That means that showing up, just showing up is not enough. It's with what record do we show up? Have we been developing clean hands and a pure heart? Have we been desiring to seek his face? Is that what attracts us here? Our desire should be to seek his presence so much that we can't stay away. That we crave to be here. How many times have parents said, did you wash your hands? How many times did the children run back to do what they'd forgotten to do or did not want to do, but the mother made them? Or the child that says, this one, I'm not going to eat with the other one. Yeah, shaking in the tank. (laughs) Coming back from the field in the horse trough. (laughs) I'm not saying I did that. Just saying that some people might have done that. Clean hands, pure heart. Can we really just have part clean? Can we just really, can we try to sample the goods that God would give without preparing the table for them. We would not expect, I would not expect, my wife to set up a meal on the tractor bucket after it had been scooping manure. And yet, how often do we Attempt to come into God's presence, asking for the blessings, but our hands or our heart are not pure, and our desire is not to seek his face. Psalms 19, just a few pages back, beautiful psalm. For those of you who know the song, 
it concludes with verse 14. Psalms 19 verse 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Are the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart acceptable? It leads to the question, then can it be unacceptable? Absolutely. That means it's possible that the things that we do might not be acceptable, and we ought to seek to figure out what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. This is, I think, really the crux of the woman at the well. She hadn't really thought about what would or not be acceptable to God. The spirit was there, but the truth was lacking. The Israelites, the exact same way to have the truth, but not really ascertain whether or not the things that you're doing are acceptable. How many of you know the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing? You've heard that before, right? There's a verse in there that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. You ever thought about that personally? Aren't we prone to wander? We are prone to wander. Our minds are prone. It's one of the reasons why we close our eyes in prayer. It's not because it's required in scripture, but because we're prone to wander. This is especially easy to do with music. Worship requires a right attitude, a right atmosphere, a right approach. But what if we have the wrong spirit? To have the truth and the wrong spirit destroys the truth. Would it still be worship then? I want to submit to you that yes, it will always be worship. But who it's worshiping might be the bigger question. Having been involved in the music industry, I didn't really care whether or not I sang Christian words or not because I knew the music would impact the people the same way. And I just wanted to have them like putty in my hands. I just wanted to be able to make them do stupid stuff. And it would. By the time the concert was done, they were acting like idiots. And it made me feel good because I had the power to manipulate them. And interestingly enough, I could sing the Christian pop songs and they would do the same thing because the words mean absolutely no difference. The music still affects them in the exact same way. The mosh pit forms in the Christian concerts just as well as it does in the non-Christian concerts. And they're just as stupid and manipulated because the music has that effect. Music has a motive. No matter what words you put to it, music has a motive. And you can make people do crazy things. So what happens then when you bring that music into the house of God? Write lyrics with the wrong music changes the spirit of worship. Reading from volume one of the testimonies. It says, angels are hovering around yonder dwelling. The young are there assembled and there is the sound of vocal and instrumental music. Christians are gathered there, but what is it that you hear? It is a song, a frivolous little ditty, a fit for a dance hall song. Behold, the pure angels gather their light closer around them, and the darkness envelops those in that dwelling. The angels are moving from the scene. Sadness is upon their countenances. Behold, they are weeping. Satan has no objection to music. Anything will suit his purpose, so long as it will divert the mind from God and engage the time which should be devoted to his service. 
When turned to good account, music is a blessing, but it is often made one of Satan's most attractive agencies to ensnare the souls. When abused, it leads the unconsecrated to pride, vanity, and folly. People assemble to sing, and although professed Christians frequently dishonor God and their faith by their frivolous conversation and their choice of music, sacred music is not congenial to their taste, they say. But I was directed to the plain teachings of God's word, which had been passed by unnoticed. And in the judgment, all these words of inspiration will condemn those who have not heeded them. Turn with me to Psalm 119, verse 9. Psalm 119, verse 9, gives us some counsel. Psalms 119, verses 9 through 11, and it says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. So stop for just a moment. If we want to have the clean hands and the pure heart, how would we know how to do that? Well, we find it in his word. With thy whole heart have I sought thee, Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. The spirit is prone to wander, but the truth can keep it anchored. Truth. These days, I'm not sure what we know what truth is. Poor Pilate's answer at the judgment is so relevant to today. Yes, I found this on the internet. Yeah, I'm not sure I believe that. Oh, I heard this in the news today. Yeah, which news did you hear that from? Yeah, that one's biased. Which one isn't these days, right? So what is truth? What really, these days, truth is relevant to the individual only. There's no moral absolutes. There's no absolute truth. And so people just kind of, well, you know, that's what you believe. You know, I, I believe this, you know, and I'm okay that we have a difference in that belief. But when it comes to worship, Worship is not opinion-based. Go with me to John 17, 17. We've talked about the where, the when. We've talked about the how. We're going to talk now about the who. John 17, 17. John 17, 17. Jesus here is speaking on behalf of the disciples prior to his crucifixion. He's speaking, praying for them. John 17, 17, and it says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. This is important. The holy experience does not come by transcendental meditation. It does not come by spiritual formation. It doesn't come by, you know, climbing upstairs and penances and all that kind of stuff. It comes through the word of God, through the power of that word, it comes because it changes us. John chapter 1, verse 14. Same gospel, John chapter 1 and verse 14. We are sanctified because the word was made flesh. John 1, 14. It says, and the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is tying back now to the where and the when. We can't testify of his glory 
if we haven't seen it all week long. We can't return praise and glory to God. We cannot worship him and give him glory if we don't know him all week long. That means the worship experience must start in our hearts, in our homes, and it must consume every aspect of who we are. When the Lord pulled me out of the music world, he had to pull the music out of me. He dissolved my band, broke it up irreparably, changed a bunch of other things in my life, and basically I had to start life over again. I began to contemplate, though, in this scenario, if God wants me all week long, then at what point in time can I add back some of what I used to have? Oh, man, got to tell you, this was a struggle. I was a good Christian as my life was coming together, and I had that good Christian playlist that I would listen to on Sabbath. And then the rest of the week, I would listen to moderately secular music that wasn't quite as bad as I used to listen to before. But it didn't draw me to the Savior. It didn't inspire me all week long for the Sabbath experience. And so like many, I would show up on Sabbath morning and I would, oh, right, I got to put in my Sabbath playlist. And, and, you know, I'd have these, you know, compilation CDs and I'd put those in and I'd sing along with them. But I was, you know, I I hadn't been used to listening to it all week long. So why would I want to do it now? I'd come and dutifully sit in church, but I really wasn't on fire for the Lord. My heart was divided. My heart was divided. In the second volume of the Testimonies, page 702, nothing which will in the sight of heaven be regarded as a violation of the Holy Sabbath should be left unsaid or undone to be said or done upon the Sabbath. God requires not only that we refrain from physical labor upon the Sabbath, but that the mind be disciplined to dwell upon sacred themes. The fourth commandment is virtually transgressed by conversing upon worldly things or by engaging in light, trifling conversation. Talking upon anything and everything which may come into the mind is speaking our own words. Every deviation from right brings us into bondage and condemnation. Interestingly enough, we like to speak about what we love. When we have a political persuasion, when we have a pet project, when we have a soapbox, we can't hardly shut up about it. In fact, we like to just, yeah, we're really excited about that. If Christ is not the thing that bubbles over in our life, then he's not the center. He's not the one that has consumed our heart. The children's song with Jesus' love is bubbling over. Jesus' love is bubbling over. You heard that song before, right? The whole idea is that what is bubbling over in our lives? And it's not just on Sabbath. What is bubbling over in our lives? When you roll down your window, what music bubbles out of your car? When someone steps on your last nerve for the seventh time today, what bubbles over from your mouth? What is it that bubbles over? That is what we have been concentrating on. That is what we have been dwelling on. That is what our heart has been consumed with. God wants us to have a revival experience that totally transforms every day of the week. 
And then on Sabbath, we come to celebrate what he's changing. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. It says, wherefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. I'm not naming a church, but I happened to visit a church. This was while my parents were still out and about. It was the church they went to. They warned me ahead of time that they didn't really stay for the main service. And I shared this experience before, but we got out of the car. And I mean, before we even got out of the car, the music was just thumping. And we had to walk nearly 150 feet because the parking lot was so big to get into the church. And by the time I got in there, it was just a cacophony of noise. The laser lights that were panning the audience and the blinking lights and the smoke machines that were going and the music up there. There's a lot that I recognize. Like, for instance, I could tell that the musicians were not enticed about God. They were drawing attention to themselves. They were actually carooning up there. You know, the whole idea that it's not about God. You're actually watching the performance of the individual, not thinking about God. And so there was just a whole lot that I could tell that there's just something's not right about this. Most importantly, when I got done with that service, they were serving food, the discarded plates of food underneath the chairs, the irreverence of the people in the sanctuary, the chaos of the noise in the bedlam. Even while the music was going on, people were yelling at each other and talking about various things, laughing and joking and carrying on. It was on the Sabbath day at a house of worship, but I'm not certain how many there. We're giving worship to the Creator God. More specifically, I'm not sure that any had any reverence or godly fear. That example is important because there are things we can recognize that might not be right. But then what about if it is the right music? And what if the message is good? And can our minds still be diverted and we're not there in reverence and godly fear? We might be just as bad off as in the wrong place at the wrong time if our mind is not reservedly Christ's. Last text in Psalms 95. Psalm 95. This whole psalm is about praise and worship. Psalms 95, we're going to start in verse 1. And it says, Psalms 95, starting in verse 1. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is also his. The sea is his, and he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Now, I want you to just take a thought for the tone. Notice the tone. The tone isn't about, well, what am I going to get out of it? The tone isn't about, I don't like the tone of that speaker. I don't like the words of that speaker. I can't stand sitting next to this person. You know what they did to me last week? 
Notice the focus is completely on God. This is the number one reason why we should come together. The fact that there are other irritating people in the congregation beside yourself should not refrain you from stepping into this place of worship. I had an individual who was complaining about how every church they went to, you know, had irritating people in it. I'm not sure it was God's grace that came out of me at that moment. I said, and they're probably grateful you left. They stopped. I said, if every church has aggravating people and causes you to leave, then it's probably not every church's fault. In the world in which we live today, we try to live in isolated bubbles and we try to imagine that it's just our needs that need to be filled. And then when we arrive at church, the tendency is, will it meet my needs? Will it fill me up? That's not our purpose to be here. Our purpose is to give praise and worship and thanksgiving to the creator of the earth and to honor him and to give him glory. And you'll notice there's a bunch of ways to do that in this text. We can do it with singing. We can do it by thanksgiving. We can do it by remembering what he has done. We can bow down and worship him and kneel and pray him. There's so many things we can do that constitute a good worship service. At the time that Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, both the majority of Israelites and the majority of the Samaritans missed all of this. And I wonder today how many people are missing it still. Worship the Creator God on the Sabbath is more than just a Sabbath experience. It's being in the right place, in the right way, in righteousness, worshiping in spirit and in truth, and it's not something you can contrive on a Sabbath morning. It's something that builds each day of the week so that when we come, we have an offering of praise and thanksgiving to give to the Lord, our maker, our creator, and our redeemer. The Sabbath day is really important. Praise the Lord for it. But it alone does not constitute keeping the Sabbath holy. How we come and how we give our hearts unreservedly to him plays such a greater part because it's necessary every day all day, every day of the week. And it will make the Sabbath holy if all week long we have been connecting with the God that makes us holy. I want to challenge you. If you have not yet started, do a morning and evening time with the Lord. Without knowing, I started doing an evening time with the Lord simply because I had nightmares as a kid. I had a brother that liked to scare the living daylights out of me, and I was afraid of the dark. I was afraid of all kinds of things. You talk to my family. I jump at the slightest bit, and it's not because they're trying. I just jump. I'm a scaredy cat. I can easily be scared. And I would wake up in the middle of the night with nightmares. But I found that the nights that I actually read the Word of God, those nightmares disappeared. My mind was stayed on Him. It was the last thing that was on my mind before I went to bed. And the nightmares have disappeared. The daymares, you know, the struggles we deal with during the day can have little impact on us if we are connected to the God of the universe.
Remember, he is infinitely bigger than any problem you will ever face. Connect with him in the morning. Connect with him at night. Connect with him all day long. And then watch how your Sabbath experience builds to a praise session on the seventh day. I challenge you as you grow in keeping the Sabbath holy, grow in your relationship and watch God become the one who sanctifies you and becomes your God all week long. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, first thing we ought to say is please forgive us. Forgive us when we've come into this house on the Sabbath day and our hearts have not been unreservedly yours. Lord, forgive us when we have begged for a blessing that you would so freely have offered if we had been ready to receive it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to seek your face, not just for a couple hours a week, but Lord, every day, all day, may we seek your face so that our Sabbath experience will build and we can shout for joy when the seventh day comes. Oh, Lord, we love you. Not even half as much as we should. So, Lord, help us to love you more. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to David Austin, pastor of the Manistique, McMillan Northwoods, and Sault Ste. Marie Seventh-day Adventist Churches. If you enjoyed his sermon, why not visit one of his churches? The Manistique Seventh-day Adventist Church is located at 809 North Duck Inn Road in Manistique, Michigan, and their church service begins at 9.30 a.m. The McMillan Northwood Seventh-day Adventist Church is located at 5219 County Road, 413 McMillan, Michigan, and their church service begins at 12.15 p.m. And the Sault Ste. Marie Seventh-day Adventist Church is located at 501 West Easterday Avenue in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. And their church service begins at 9.30 a.m. This has been a Strong Tower Radio production.